everybody. We are back for episode 14, and we have a super duper duper special one that we are super super duper excited for stoked for yes uh today we have a very very special guest miss kathy keats and um we are going to be talking a lot about the mental side of things of our sport of agility because i think a lot of people focus on the training and the dog side of things but the mental human management management brain management side of things is like it's a whole it's a whole other ball game and this is going to be really helpful for those of you who are brand new to the sport just to learn a little bit about this now maybe you're just starting out and you're feeling a little anxious and nervous about things or maybe you've been doing this for a long time and the mental side of things is something that you struggle with or you want to improve that or whatnot so um of course my co-host Jamie and I are here together. We're being joined with uh, Kathy, and um, she is calling in, and we're really, really, really excited to have you here, Kathy. So thank you for coming on our podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here with you both. I love the way you both run dogs and your attitudes towards all things with dog agility and dog sport. So it's going to be a great conversation. Oh, you're the best. So. Um, so, Kath, I want you just to maybe start off by um, introducing yourself a little bit. Tell our um, listeners a little bit about who you are, kind of what you do. We know who you are. We know what you do. But for those people who maybe don't know, maybe just give us a little spiel, a little rundown of, um, of uh, what you do for our sport. Sure. I'm a high-performance coach. My background is uh, in elite sports, so I competed at basketball at a very high level um, internationally. And then I went on to compete um, in agility internationally. As you know, Kale, we I were do. at the very early world championships together where I won a, a few world titles there. You won and, the world title there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a bunch and, the big one, uh, yep. We went on to um, doing uh, sheepdogging, where I represented Canada twice at the World Sheepdog Trial as well in that. And I think the big thing I sort of recognized is a lot of people get hung up on talent, mm. but really a lot of it is about a process of understanding skill acquisition and mental game and how those pieces all fit together. Because I wouldn't consider myself talented as much as I understand how to go about getting to a level of performance. And that's what I'm trying to bring back to the dog sport world. I love that. That's a really cool separation mm-hmm. because you're right. You can, you can have all the talent in the world at, you know, running or training your dog or doing whatever you, you know, whatever you're good at, whatever your sport is, whatever your thing is. But if you can't put it together, put it together and keep your mind in a place that can allow you to be successful over and over and over again, or pick yourself back up after maybe it doesn't go so well, then, you know, that's sort of where you're going to, you're going to plateau. So that's, um, that's cool. I love that way of thinking of it. Um, so, oh, so yep, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, you know, it's interesting because some people, um, and you've dealt with this, I'm sure, one of the issues that people run into is they may end up getting a good dog and they think they get it. Mm-hmm. And but then they really can have a letdown when they get the next dog that maybe is a bit trickier. And it really gives them a hit to their confidence in the wrong direction. So that's why it's so important to understand the principles of these things, because mm-hmm. it not only helps you with your training and your handling, but it helps you ride the roller coaster, too. That's inevitable if you're in the sport for any length of time. Yeah, the roller coaster. <laughs> it is a roller coaster. <laughs> that's so true. I, every We've talked about this in previous dog, uh, dog, dog casts. That's what we should have called it, a dog cast. I like it. Um, we've talked about this in previous podcasts, um, not so much with the mental management side, of things but just um when we talked about uh we did one on like managing expectations and and things like that and we talked about having multiple dogs and you know how you sometimes have to change from one dog to the next and you have to think about the dog not you know just because something worked with the last dog or the last situation you have to train what you have not you know it's not a b c or d what you're comfortable with sometimes this dog needs a b D and then you go back for C or whatever it might be like you need to remember to be fluid. So that's, um, that's a really good point. So a couple of um, directions that we wanted to go uh, today was um, of course the direction from like a handler's uh, point of view. And we had a few questions about, about that side of things, but seeing as we're all coaches of many levels of people, we also wanted to have a chat with you from a coaching's pr- perspective as well. So, um, you know, for those of you listening, if you're an instructor yourself, or if you're a coach, I think you're going to find this very fascinating. I also think that if you're 
a handler or if you're a student of a coach, maybe hearing things from a coach's perspective also may make you think about things a little bit differently as well. I don't know which direction we're going to go quite yet, but um, I do think it's going to be, I do think it's going to be a really important one. So maybe we'll talk about like the handler side of things first, and then we can get into the coaching thing. So um, we were prepared with a couple uh, questions um, and again, we do not need to stay on on script if we want to go in some weird and wonderful ways. We're all about that. Um, but the first question that I had is, um, do you find that there is, because you work with a lot of people. So do you find that there is one, maybe more than one common struggle that you see with with the people that you work with? And why I ask this question is I think sometimes, like, I think it's important for people to realize that like. I don't know, maybe there isn't a common one. You'll answer that in a second. But if there is, hopefully people who are listening might say to themselves, oh, I feel that way. And it's natural for me to feel that way. Yeah, like it's a normal thing. So do you find there is a couple things that like you're like, yep, I've heard this before. You know, uh, you know here's here's our game plan. For sure. There's probably two or three that you hear regularly. But one of them, of course, is self-doubt. Mm. One of them um, is and almost everything, no matter which it is, it comes either back to some insecurity or some fear. It, it's manifesting in different ways, but it usually comes back to some sort of confidence issue. They don't believe they can go ahead and do whatever it is they're going to do. They're not good enough or all those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And also it comes down to they fear not being good enough. They fear being rejected by other people or not being respected by other people. And so that element of things is always what we end up dealing with. And one of the things I always kind of say is the sports psych techniques are important because they give you strategies. But if you don't deal with the deeper kind of issues that are going on, the problem is, is when it matters the most to you, the sports psych techniques are just band-aids in a way mm. because self-doubt or that identity that you have about yourself is going to reach back up and grab you by the throat. Right, right. It's really important to try and understand that those are useful. You definitely need to know the techniques, but everything that whenever you're having doubts and fears and frustrations, it's all ego related in some way, fears, doubts, who I am, what my identity is. And it all comes back to those things eventually. And do you feel that the handler has to pinpoint what the exact issue is? Not necessarily the exact issue. Um, It can be helpful because when you're more aware of the issue, you're more aware of the trigger. Mm. And when you're aware of the trigger, you're more able to stop the sequence of behavior change that happen. Having said that, you don't necessarily have to know the exact cause, but you do need to recognize when the emotion is at least starting. Right. Whatever trigger, because the emotion itself is a form of a trigger too, right? Yes. So even if you're not going to go back and sort of look at your whole past history and do the whole Freudian thing that way, but uh, you have to at least be aware enough to be aware of the emotional trigger that's getting pressed and so that you can deal with it in the moment, in the present. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. Um one thing that um, I was telling Jamie about um, my experience at the competition um, a few weekends ago is um, for the first time in a really long time, because I haven't competed in two years, which is the longest span I've ever gone, my, like since I was probably 10, 11, 12 years old. So that's a long time, guys. I'm 37 now. <laughs> a long time. Um, but I was saying for the first time in a long time, I was like definitely more in my head, not about, um, not about being successful to, to be honest with you. I, I didn't really care about how I did in terms of like the placements of things. I just wanted to like feel good. I wanted to like have that feeling that I get when I compete and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't as my timing was off and whatever. I, I, I didn't really do as great as I thought it would be, but also I'm rusty. But what I found really interesting is for the first time in the longest time, I was much more aware of my surroundings when I would go in the ring than I have been in the past. I noticed it. Sometimes I'll notice when I watch my videos back, I'll like go into the ring and then like the arena will be completely quiet because they all want to see what I do, whether they want to see me be, be successful or maybe they can't wait to see me bomb. I don't really know. <laughs> but in the moment, usually when I go into the ring, 
that is the last thing I'm thinking about. I am 100% focused on what I need to do with my dog. And for the first time this past weekend, I noticed the silence and it distracted me. And the fact that I knew that it was distracting me distracted me more. You know what I mean? Because I was like, what the hell? People. Cycle. Like, I've been off for two years, too. Go about your business. Like, don't worry about what I'm doing. I I don't know what I'm going to do. But, like, how about you just not worry about it? But then I thought, like, this is just silly. So, of course, I take it as a compliment. And, you know, it, it's happened lots of times and I've learned to deal with it. But I just found it so interesting that I noticed it. And I wouldn't say that it affected me in a negative way. I wasn't I, I wasn't like, oh, God, they're watching me. I better do well. I was just kind of like, huh. It's there. Wow. This is like interesting. Yeah. Uh, like I, yeah, it's just, it's that added, added pressure. And I feel like I, I mean, will ask you, you know, what would you suggest to work on that? I, I feel like that's something that I'll go back to being, you know, better at once I get going. But I would imagine that other people probably feel this as well. They probably feel pressure, as you've just said, to perform, to do well, or, you know, maybe they're worried about screwing up and then people seeing that or, or whatever it might be. But um, it's not something that I was used to experiencing. And uh, it was after the weekend when I was kind of reflecting on my weekend, that is definitely something that I was like, hmm, that was a weird experience. I think to your point, I think a lot of people are experiencing that in different ways. Now you, Kale, are actually kind of unique in that because you started so young, adults learn a lot differently than kids do. Mm. And there's something about inertia because it has been such a long time since you've been competing or that you that you went so long without having a gap in your competing. Yeah. And also you rarely had big gaps between major events because right. of how talented a handler you are. So what's really odd for that situation is so that inertia, you just kind of went on to each event and it was like normal life, right? You would go and you'd know you'd probably do pretty well at the events and you had that level of confidence. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, it's the same thing, this, the pandemic, as well as if they have gaps between dogs. So all of a sudden, it's like you're a newbie. It's like mm. you're starting out again for the first time. And you get that same sense of, I have no idea what's going to happen, <laughs> yes. but when, right? But when you've been doing it for a long time, you start to get in a rhythm of, you kind of know what's going to happen. You're comfortable with it. Yeah. All of a sudden you had to face, I have no idea what's going to happen right now because I haven't been in this situation. A so, very uncomfortable feeling for me. I yeah. also like to be in control of everything. So when I don't really know what the outcome is going to be, it's like, huh, how's this going to go? It's not my happy place. A hundred percent. And that's exactly what happens is the shift happens in a few different ways, but it's entirely almost a focus shift. So what happens is, is you get into a rhythm when you're regularly going to big events as you go, hmm, okay, I know I'm going to be nervous. That's normal. I know where my training level is. Uh, you know, so I, I have a sense of control, even if I know I don't really have control, yeah. there's a sense of control that a lot of people have lost now going into these events because there's this level of uncertainty, which goes back to the fear again. Mm -hmm. And you'll feel that at different levels. Like you might not describe it as fear, but that level of uncertainty creates the flight or fight, fight response. Right. And so what that then does is it puts you in this really uncomfortable feeling that's maybe not your normal, I'm just excited to compete, but it's like, I don't like how this is feeling. This is not normal. <laughs> So then what it says primarily is it affects A, your framing, and B, your focus. So your focus probably went more internal than it normally does at a competition. Mm -hmm. And it was focusing on the wrong kinds of things. Right. Where you're in your zone and you're in your normal rhythm, you're focusing on the dog, you're focusing on the course. And that's why they call it getting in the zone is that all that outside world drops away because your focus isn't on that. Your focus is narrow and external. Mm -hmm. But what happens to you is your focus under that kind of pressure and discomfort went external and wide. Yep. Mm. Yep. So it all has to do with ultimately, however nervous you're feeling, whether you feel like you're going to throw up or not, if you can control your focus, mm -hmm. control a lot of the physiological responses you're having. Um, it's so interesting when I th if I think back to like I did eight runs and I feel that I really only did like excellent at one, even though my results didn't, my results didn't 
I, I did well with results, but in terms of like that passion, that feeling yeah. that like you leave and you're like, man, that, that was, was a, great a one. good one. I think I only did that once, but if I think about um, the focus I had going in, I knew it was going to be good because it, it, whether it was going to be good and clear, I don't mean that. I just meant I knew I was going to be there for my dog. I was going to be, I just was like, man, I got, I got this one. Like I, I was super, super clear going in and it, it, it went great. And some of the ones that I did the worst in. Did you know instantly? Yes, because yeah. I was fighting the focus as I was walking in and I was trying to, okay, Cal, like you're feeling off. Just like, come on, get it together. Come on, get it together. So my question for you is that, do you have a, a suggestion on how somebody could flip the focus? I mean, I'm sure it's got to be learned, but is there, is there something you could do that could help you? Like I I'm aware enough that I can feel when it's there and it's not there, which I guess is in the right direction, but I don't, I wasn't good at flipping it in the moment there. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, one of the interesting things is you've probably gone into run feeling good and maybe still had a dog's breakfast. Yep. Sure have. <laughs> to runs where you didn't feel so great and you nailed it. Yep. Right. So one of the things is not to get too hung up on the idea that how you're feeling is predicting how that run is going to go. Mm, because the problem is if you focus on that, it's taking your focus away from where it needs to be. Well, isn't that <laughs> a, a revelation light bulb <laughs> moment right there? So true. Yeah, because, I mean, we've all done it, right? Oh, I'm going to nail this dog breakfast. It's like, that didn't work, you know. So not getting too hung up on how it feels. We all want to feel great going into the ring, right? Like we think it protects us and it's like our super duper cape we've got on and we're going to, you know, but we all know it doesn't always go that way. Mm -hmm. And just like I said, when we've not always felt great, sometimes when you've felt sick, you've gone into the ring feeling sick, you've probably had some of your best runs Yeah. when you're feeling well, because you're, you knew that I just have to focus here because I am hanging on for dear life yeah. and I don't feel it. Yeah. But what that idea does is with each dog, we know they have a strength and a weakness, right? Mm -hmm. So let's say you've got a dog, it's a great dog, but if it's got a slight flaw, maybe it's that if I rush, it won't entirely commit. I can pull it off really easy. So for that run, just focus on committing to every obstacle. Just get the job done and answer the questions that you know your dog is going to ask. Mm. And if you do that, all of a sudden you're asking yourself, how can I help my dog versus how am I feeling? Mm, I like that. If you do that, it starts to take you out of getting too inside your own head. Yeah, shifts the focus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and the other thing is, is when you think about helping somebody else in real life, even it gets you out of your own head, right? Yeah. So you apply the principle to the dog where you say, all I have to do is answer all your questions and let the cards fall where they may, because Ultimately, I have no control over this other than taking care of the task. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you know what that is and you have what I call um, a performance key, whether it's I need to make sure that I just simply make sure that I commit to every obstacle or maybe I know I've got a really wide jumping dog and I've got to be really aware of my turns in my collection or whatever it is that you just really make sure that you get task focused, you move your focus to the external onto the dog. How can I help the dog? And then because it sort of connects you to the dog, your yeah. ego kind of, it gets, you sort of get rid of a bit of the ego. And that also helps you not worry about outcome because you're staying in the moment. Usually we all know when we're in the moment, we're not thinking about anything. And then as soon as you think, man, I'm doing good. I'm, I think I'm winning this run. <laughs> everything just goes. Yeah. <laughs> So focusing on the task is the simplest way to get yourself, you know, back in the zone and reminding yourself how I feel right now does not predict outcome. How I focus is going to predict outcome. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Okay. I have a question for you and I, th I think it's a fear-based one as well. Um, working with a dog recovering from an injury and always mm -hmm. running the dog cautiously because you're thinking about that injury injury. And how to, how to overcome that and just get back to feeling good about running your dog. You know, that's 
one of the, I think, hardest mental things to get through because it's the same thing for us as people. And this is speaking from experience because over the course of my athletic career, I've blown out my knee and had reconstructive surgery. I've had back surgery and I've come back from those things to go on to world events. Mm -hmm. And one of the toughest things is if you're running tentatively, ask yourself first this, do I not think my dog has recovered enough yet to handle this? Is the first mm. question. Okay. If it is, you shouldn't be running it in the first place. Yeah. And if it is recovered enough to run, you need to run it because your hesitation is what's going to injure it. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you're either there or you're not. I always say to people, you know how people get, you know, my dog's this, my dog's that. It's we pull entries bad. It's not doing contact, but they're still trialing. Yep. <laughs> And I'll say, you know what, if you walk to the line with that dog, you're choosing to go with what you've got. And you either, either, either have to be all in or mm-hmm. don't walk to the line. Yep. Preach, right? preach. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> yes, I a thousand percent agree. We just did a, a podcast on contact training and on how people don't get good performance in trialing as they do training. And essentially, that's what we said. If your dog's not ready to be in a testing environment with your contacts, don't be going in a testing environment. But I mean, that same thing can in running an injuring dog and a past previously injured dog is a lot more serious, but the concept is exactly is, is the same. The same. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And the other thing too, is when you think of progression, um, you know, like I've worked with students where say they're aiming for a big event and they've got a dog that's injured and, you know, it's going to be close whether they can go to the event or not. Mm. And in my mind, this is how I look at it as an athlete. If you aren't able, if I were a basketball player and I was injured, if I wasn't able to partake in practices leading up to the big event, I should not be in that game. So if you are not building up slowly, like I'm not saying just leap into full-blown practice, but if you aren't building in training, you know, progressively to the point where I'm doing everything in training, I feel like this dog has to do in a trial, then you probably shouldn't be trialing yet because Mm -hmm. it needs practice first yeah progress yep agree (laughs) and that will build your confidence right because when you know the dog's running well in training then you'll feel fine to step in the ring because you know you're there Mm -hmm. um and with injuries too right same idea yeah you just had that experience. Jane didn't go to the competition that I was going to because her dog was injured before but is now better but she didn't feel that she was, she just wasn't like, she's running the dog in class. Like she's doing great, but she hasn't been doing it very long. So she's like, do I really want to go to a competition and not be prepared? Yeah. And then yeah. run my dog horribly or cause you're worried. Yeah. And then something happens because she's also going to be super high because she just got back into class and she's yeah. a wild woman. No, she's <laughs> like, yay, my life is back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You need to get back. And I mean, I know, I'm singing to the choir here, but when you think about being prepared to run, you never want to go in feeling like you're only just there. You always want to be practicing above the level that you're trialing at. Mm-hmm. If you don't feel like, you know, Shay, nay, nay, girlfriend, I'm going to go nail this. <laughs> you <should be> going. <laughs> I did not feel that girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Jim, yeah. you had another question. Um, that was similar to the one that I asked about. Is there a common uh, problem? You had the the factor, the characteristic that, remember? I think we kind of talked about it. But um, my question was, what do you find the biggest factor or characteristic in someone's ability to perform successfully? Uh, well, here's the here's the interesting thing. A lot of people come to me thinking they have a mindset problem and they have a training problem. <laughs> okay. Because most people... One thing I don't think we're very good at in um, the dog world kind of in general, but I'd say in dog agility is I'd say like the top 10, 20% know how to train skills and train for competition. I'd say that the vast majority of that information is not actually getting down to the students. And whether that's because, and I know I'm slightly sliding to the coaching side of things here, 
whether we don't realize it and we're not conveying it well enough, whether we're not able to stop them from trialing before they're ready, mm-hmm. you know, because we have lots of things around business and all that kind of stuff that happens. Um, so I think one of the biggest issues is most people don't know how to prepare for competition in the way that brings their skills that they can do in training, bring them to competition correctly. I, I completely agree. This is something that, that we try to focus a lot on in, in our um, agility program. We have like prep classes and we have we start studying judges of upcoming competitions. You know, I look at the trends. I usually can look at a course, not look at even who's judging it or who's designed it. And by looking at the course, I typically from the European judges anyways can say, oh, this is a Tomas course or whatever, because I can tell by the by the mm-hmm. flow. And so we're able to practice that. But we also do things like clear round training, or we do like, we put pressure on them somehow, or we put something on the line, or we play loud music, or we don't let them have a 100 tries, we make them go right there, then on the spot, or, you know, exactly. all of those types of things. And you're not obviously training like that all of the time. There's a time that you need to start doing that type of training and then there's also a time leading up to a competition that you shouldn't be doing that anymore so you're not doing that pressure you should be you know we say like maybe the week before competition you're just loading up your contacts or you're rewarding your start line or you're just doing some easy like feel good things so you go in feeling good about it but i completely agree i think a lot of people don't know how to compete and so they go there and they're like a fish out of water and they're so stressed and then that then they're also not enjoying it because they're so hung up on how they feel about it that you you said this about losing losing the fun yeah losing the passion Mm. Mm mm-hmm yeah, and I think that goes on a lot of levels. Like when you think of the level that, um, like the really professional uh, athletes of any sort do, but in the dog world, I mean, the level of proofing that you go into. Yeah. So the dog can't make a mistake. Most people try and get it right, but they don't train so they can't get it wrong. Mm-hmm. Those are different things. And then when you have a level of trust in your dog that says, I trust you to help me here and do your part. I'm not trying to do 99% of it. You go in with a lot different level of confidence mm-hmm. than when you've got to patch this and I've got to patch that. And, you know, and to your point, each of those things, like if you can't nail your course the first time, if you don't understand how to survive when things go slightly wrong, if you don't know how to deal with delays at the start line yeah. or Right before something happens, a dog snarks at your dog and now you're completely mentally shot. You know, there's all these pieces that you need to know the training is there, that your training is there. And also something I think we don't always do well as coaches is cut the apron strings enough that they trust their own handling decisions. Mm. Spoon feed them too much. And then when they have to make a choice on their own, they don't trust it. We see that in class. This is a common conversation that Mm -hmm. Jamie and I and and Steve and Ange and all the people that teach with us, we always have these conversations because we want to be helpful and we want to teach them so many things about how to how to handle and how to make the best choices. And sometimes I think it's not always to the student's benefit. Like really what I try to focus on as much as I can is teaching the students how to come up with the answer themselves so mm-hmm. that it's not like, okay, do this here, do this that, there. It's, okay, why should you do this there? Why is that the best decision for your dog? Like, I might do this with my dog, but, like, does your dog run like my dog? No, they have a much bigger stride or they have a much shorter stride. So what should you do differently here? Um, but I, I think it's it, – that is that is something because I think some people do go to trials and they start walking around the course and they start to see all these people. And they're influenced by that. So influenced that I see people try to handle like, you know, copy my handling. And I think to myself, you're running a giant male border collie. I'm running a 16 inch mini border collie. Like mm-hmm. we shouldn't necessarily be doing the same things here or one person can run. One person can't run, whatever it might be. Yeah, there's there's so much validity to that for sure. I, I I completely agree. Well, one of the things I think we actually do a disservice to our um, students sometimes by teaching them that there's a way to handle a course 
as opposed to there's a way the course affects each dog, which is a completely different way of thinking about it. Because when you handle a course, there's a right way and a wrong way to handle a course. But when you look at how will this course impact each dog, then you're putting the, the focus on how to handle the dog as opposed to how to handle the course. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's a subtle difference, but I don't think it's a difference that the students always pick up. I think either intuitively or over time, the more advanced you get, the more you realize that. Mm-hmm. But here, when they think it's about handling the course, then there's a right way and a wrong way. And the better handlers will handle it the right way and they'll handle it the wrong way. Even to your point, if they've got a completely different dog, mm-hmm. that's, they, it's not the wrong way. It's the way that my dog needs to be handled. Mm-hmm. Totally. Totally. Um, we should maybe get into the, um, the the coach's side of things. I had one more... Um, I had one more thing though on my handler, my handler side that, that just might be good. Um, actually I had two things. <laughs> uh, one was, um, when somebody is really struggling with like mental management stuff, and maybe you've already answered this cause you said it has a lot to do with like the dog training, but do you think that there's work that can be done with people like outside of agility that could improve their mental, um, game, you know, mental game inside the ring? hundred percent. And you know, one of the biggest things is to your point, when people are struggling, sometimes certainly it's, you know, a training issue, but that doesn't mean that mental game isn't stopping them from improving that technical piece Mm. because sometimes ego gets in the way so they can't take feedback very well. Sometimes what ends up happening is, um, you know, they've kind of made up their mind about this is, the way the problem is and they don't have a growth mindset. So be able to take and change. So there's still this element of mental games that really plays a role in how fast you progress. So that's an important thing to remember about it. But as far as practicing outside goes, one of the biggest things that we have to do, not only as competitors, but as people is we need to learn to master ourselves. And that means mastering our emotions. And one of the important things to understand about that is emotions, we aren't our emotions. Emotions are chemicals that get triggered in our body based on external triggers and sort of our previous experience of that trigger, okay? So what happens is, is if you understand how to, I'll call it hack, for lack of a better word, your physiology, what you can do is when you start to feel mad or sad or angry or whatever, your body's turning out a certain chemical. When you learn how to change and reframe how you're looking at things, what happens is your limbic system can clear out that chemical and replace it with a new chemical within 90 seconds. Oh. So if you are staying in that emotion for longer than 90 seconds, you're choosing it. You're revving the engine. Mm-hmm. And that is something we all know that we can practice outside of sport at any time. Oh, yeah. Being able to practice recognizing emotional, you know, triggers that we have and being able to replace them. Now, one of the easiest ones is gratitude for replacing um, emotions that are negative. One of the hard things, though, is we are hardwired to really respond to negative emotions because that's what protects us, right? We when we get in dangerous situations or anything else. So we're hardwired that we pay more attention to negative than positive. Mm -hmm. So it does take a bit of a conscious effort and even a plan to notice I'm feeling this way, choose that that's not who you want to be Mm -hmm. and replace it with a positive emotion. Now I'm not saying you should never feel those things. We're human. We're going to feel them. You're allowed to feel them. And I even like, you know, I kind of have a, rule with myself that I'm allowed to go have a five minute pity party if I really want to. (laughs) (laughs) But at the end of the five minute pity party, it's give yourself a violent shake, put on your big girl pants. And yeah, Jam and I talk often about this thing that we made up years and years ago called the bitter barn. And uh, we've talked about it in other podcasts, but basically it's, it's our our pity barn. We take, you know, if somebody needs to go to the bitter barn, we take the dog away from them because of course you don't want the dog to be involved at all. You can go into your car, go into your tent, scream, swear, kick, cry, whatever you need to. And then when you're done, you're done and Mm -hmm. we move on. And uh, even just 
calling it the bitter barn like something it, silly. <laughs> it just that also just like makes it a yeah. little funnier. It's like helps you bring come down. Yeah, come you can uh. kind of be like, do you need to go to the bitter barn? Yeah, okay, I'll see you in five minutes. Like, <laughs> and then you just you kind of have to giggle because you're like, we're ridiculous. But and it so I, yeah, I, I always say that like people can be. It's okay to be upset, especially like. You know, for me, like on on the weekend, I would have like a run and I would, I got like in one run, I got um, two refusals and I was irritated when I got out of the ring because I thought like, damn, I felt so good going into that one and I could have crushed that. And everyone's like, oh my God, that was so great. Oh my God, how amazing. And in my mind, I was like, no, it wasn't. I got two refusals. Are you blind? <laughs> What's wrong with you people? But then at the same time, I'm like, kill, relax, like who cares? <laughs> but then also at the same time, it's like, obviously the reason why I've been good at the sport is because I have high expectations and I push myself to be the very best I can be. But there's got to be a point where you you need to make sure you stay healthy about it as well. Um, you want to you wanna do well and you want to push yourself and it's okay to be disappointed. I, you know, I'm not going to lie. I want to get a clear run and the fastest time every single time. That is what I want. But I also mm-hmm. understand that that is a completely unachievable goal, that it will never happen. It, right. It's, you know, it's just not achievable. So it, it's managing those expectations and, you know, smiling through your teeth and being like, yeah, thanks. You know, it was a great <laughs> run and rolling my eyes as I walk away. <laughs> you know, it's like not, not, and nothing towards them. It's so kind that yeah. people say that it's great, but you know, it's it, it, figuring out like what's good enough for yourself. Right. You might be thinking, Kale, you have a really unhealthy, like men- <laughs> mental game. Yeah, it's okay. If you think that you can just say it <laughs> more balanced scale. <laughs> no, that's exactly what we're talking about is, And that's actually part of the problem is some people think, oh, I had a bad thought. I must have a terrible mental game. Mm. No, don't have a terrible mental game. What matters is what you choose to do with what happens, with Mm. what you choose to, you know, you're allowed to be disappointed. I mean, if you didn't feel disappointed, we're all putting tons of resources and time and energy into this, right? Like it's, it's a big deal. So it's okay. It matters to you. That's why it matters. The hardest part, I think, is it not mattering while you're actually in the middle of the run. Yeah. Yeah. You're in the middle of the run. You get judgy if it matters and you can't afford to be judgy in the middle of a run. Mm -hmm. Right. So on the outside at the start, you know, before the run, after the run, we know it matters. The trick to performance is it not mattering while you're in it. Mm -hmm. But after it didn't go the way you wanted, it's going to matter. And so you're going to have those chemicals are going to run. You can't help that. That's mm-hmm. going to happen. It doesn't change the fact that, I mean, Kel, I think you have one of the great mental games. So, but the fact that even what you both are talking about is the idea of you create a funny situation. Okay. You're going to the bitter barn. You're talking about exactly what I'm saying, mm-hmm. consciously saying, okay, we get that. That chemical's going in your system right now, but we're not going to let you rev, rev the engine for too long here. And you're finding out other triggers to shift it. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to say, and this, you know, all three of us understand this very thoroughly, but for people who are listening, it is so important that whatever this emotion is that you feel like for me, even though I was, I was no, I was, I was unhappy when I left the ring, but I was unhappy with myself. I tugged for 10 minutes with my dog. I told her how much I loved her. She, I almost felt bad because I let her down. She, she was picture perfect all weekend. She's an incredible dog and I will never ever forget that. But I think it's really important. You have to find that balance. And that that's another reason why we do the bitter brown where we remove yourself from the dog because you don't want it to impact how your dog feels. And and that's another thing that, that mm-hmm. we want, want to get into as well. I don't mean to sh- shift the focus, but sometimes we do find that we have people that get really down and we see this a lot in class. People get disappointed or they get frustrated and then they either blatantly take it out on the dog um or they it brings down the the class environment yeah and mm-hmm. um it can really affect some dogs and uh, you know both Jamie and I went through this personally with our own dogs with um my dog was funky monkey which I'm I'm sure you I don't know if we were around when when you she was around when you were still competing but um and then Jamie had a dog named Wink and my experience with funky is she was very, very sensitive. If I even oh, sighed like that, she'd pin her ears back and she'd be like, oh, mom's mad. And then she would walk 
through the course or she'd hide in a tunnel. And I had to learn real fast that I was skating on thin ice. And if I didn't get my shit together and start controlling my emotions around her and making her feel that everything was good, even so inside I was disappointed, I wasn't going to have a dog to run. (laughs) So I had to figure that out. But now I, because I've been through it myself and also we're around so many people, it's something that, that we really notice now with students and whatnot and how their behavior affects their dogs. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get a little sad here for a second. I also just recently lost a dog uh, a few years ago. Uh, he was four. He, he died really young with cancer and he was an amazing dog. Um, litter mate too. Shit. <laughs> my, my, my dog. <laughs> yeah. Um, a litter mate to Jamie's dog. And when you lose a dog who like he was, you know, was about to try out for the world team. He was amazing when you lose the dog. And now I can never compete with him. For a little while, I've relaxed a little bit about it now, but like for like a year or so after teaching in class, if somebody was being a dickhead to their dog, I was so mad because I thought this is Mm -hmm. just agility. Who cares? Mm -hmm. You could not have the dog. Be nice. (laughs) Be nice. But anyways, going off course, but I, I just think it's an important thing to remember because your emotions not only affect you and your performance, they also affect your dog and your dog's performance. They also affect everybody else around you. I'll, I'll stop you know, now. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, you know, revving here to get in. You know, the real thing I want to emphasize, though, and I 100% agree with what you're saying, just because you're feeling it, you don't have to choose to act on it. Oh. That's a really important piece I want people to get out of this, is not only can you be feeling a certain way, it doesn't diminish that you're feeling that way. That's, and that's what I want people to understand. It doesn't diminish that you're feeling that way. But there are tools to change it, and you do not have to choose to act on it. Mm-hmm. You can choose to act differently. We've all been in situations probably where you're having an argument with, I don't know, like a significant other or someone, you know, and someone knocks on the door, and you're like, hi, how are you? <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> I'm sorry, everything's fine. <laughs> and so you can choose to act differently, even though we're feeling a certain type of emotion, mm-hmm. right? And that's a really important piece because – even though, um, you know, fake it till you make it, there is evidence around that that shows that is another thing that even though you're not feeling it in that moment, as you act a certain way or as you smile or as you do different things, there's physiological changes that happen that help trigger the emotions you're looking for, mm-hmm. right? So it's really important to understand that. To your point, never should you take it out on a dog. It doesn't discount that you're feeling a certain way, but you can still engage in productive, empowering behaviors until you can separate yourself from the situation, get your renewal time that you need, and get yourself reset. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's move on to the coaching thing now, because I think that that's good. We had, um, you know, we'll talk about that, like suggestions for students that you have um, that are quick to be negative reactive yeah and like sometimes i think what happens is we joke sometimes like uh, sometimes i feel more like a therapist than an agility coach because sometimes you got to have that the little one-to-one with them after class to be like what is up with you like why 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 are we getting so frustrated here like what what can we do about this and um you know it's nice to have those moments with the students and be able to be like, okay, this is what the issue is. Let's move forward. Where it gets frustrating is when you're having that same conversation or you're having that same problem with a student over and over and over again. And, you know, Jamie and I discuss this all the time. It's like, okay, Jamie, your turn. Okay, Kale, your turn. And it's like, at what point is now the responsibility on the student to change their, to change their behavior? Because it, we can't do that for them. So have you, have you had an experience with this yourself at all? Or have you had other people say, you know, that they've, they've been in the situation? You know, one of the things I always really try and pay attention to, um, first off, I will say, I think twice in my life, I have fired a student. Oh yeah. I have actually fired a student twice in my life. Um, but having said that, that is an absolute, absolute last, last straw resort like very end of the, you know, very last resort. But what I really try um, to do, and I'm sure you do as well, is set expectations up up front, of course. And one of the things I think is important 
is I do bring up pretty early in the process the idea of the conversation about identity, about where anger is coming from, about why it's non-productive. So, you know, you joke about being a therapist. Well, I literally do the therapy thing (laughs) (laughs) very early on in a class. Um, And I set expectations where, uh, you know, you end up doing trying to make sure everyone's on board with the type of expectations because culture plays a big part, right. In what people feel is okay and not okay. Um, Having said that, I also do really try and recognize what are the needs of each individual handler, right? So because I've, and you know this, you've both taught seminars all over the place. I don't tend to have, problems at all in seminars, because one of the very early things I try and do is recognize what the needs of the individual people are in the class. So some people are very achievement oriented, mm-hmm. some people looking for acceptance, some people are looking. Now, I'm not saying that I, you know, blow smoke, you know, <laughs> type. but what I'm trying to do is figure out how can I most understand this person to help fulfill the needs that they have so that they're able to hear me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, and it's very difficult in weekly class settings, I think, because you kind of have progressions in mind of where you're trying to take the class, is how to impact that person with that dog so they're getting success. Now, of course, people can still be difficult because they can feel if you put them into a remedial drill that, you know, they feel like they should be up with the other group of people, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I get all the dynamics that happen with that. But when you start to have repeat conversations about it, it's worthwhile looking at what is the trigger that's causing this and what is, how is that behavior serving the student? Is it getting attention from you? Is it that they are a bit self-abusive? You could even, you know, like there's all sorts of elements that are going on there. So it's hard to give a recipe because mm-hmm. it's it very individualized. Individual going on to each particular student Mm -hmm. but I would do what you said where um, I would also if I have to take them off to the side and try and have like a you know conversation with them that I can and I think one of the toughest things being a coach is you obviously want to support and encourage as much as possible but every now and again there is time the time comes for a hard conversation Mm mm-hmm and we've probably all being in sports had the hard conversation. And those are actually the ones that we remember because they're the ones that changed our behavior. Yes. Right. Um, but again, there's all these other elements going on because, you know, you're dealing with a customer as well. Yeah. Right. And yep. as a coach, following that, you know, as you see it. Right. So mm-hmm. it depends on if they're willing to make if change that they want from your relationship. Yeah. I do find that a lot of people um, are quite receptive when you're and and the negativity that I'm talking about is not so much like yelling and screaming or treating the dog poorly. It's it's more like um, they're so focused on things going wrong oh. or, or because they yeah. want to be perfect. You're right. Exactly. They're so focused on things going wrong that then like they'll do like one station and they'll do poorly at that station and that happens sometimes. And then they'll go to the next one and they're already in the mindset of, well, you know, cause usually if like they're working with Jamie, for example, and they come over to work with me, I'm like, Hey, how did the last station go? Like, and then if they're, I ask this because I also kind of want to figure out what I'm working with. Right. Or Jane will come over and say like, Hey, so-and-so had a great station. So-and-so didn't have a great station. So, you know, you know, you might want to switch things up. So we talk behind the scenes too. But when I say like, Hey, how did the last station go? And they're like, well, not so great. And like, you know, he wasn't listening to me or he's knocking all the bars or wasn't getting his weave entry tonight. And it's like that tone. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, no problem. Usually you can butter them up and, you know, no worries. Like, let's make things easier on this side. Like, let's try and go for a win. Like you can do that. But it, what is challenging is when it it's the same focus, the same focus and the same thing over and over again, because the person does quickly go to the, to the negative, to the negative Nelly or the Debbie Downer or all these Verbal ladies that get their names, whatever, Karens, all these people that um, that have the trouble. That's sort of what what um, I'm talking talking about. And I, I'm sure the answer is the same, but that's sort of the, the struggle. You know what you can do is you can actually 
make them take responsibility. Their sport is sort of coming to you and looking for spoon feeding for support. Mm -hmm. But what if you're at a trial and you're not there to spoon feed them? So what I would do instead is I'd turn it around to them and I'd say, okay, so uh, if you were me right now, what would I say to you? Mm. And I would start to make them take a little bit of responsibility for turning it around themselves instead of always expecting you to turn it around. I mean, there's an element that one of the problems with being an adult learner is there's this real element of right and wrong and perfection. Mm-hmm. Whereas when kids learn, there's an element of experimentation and, oh, well, that didn't work. Let's try this. And I think that's something we miss doing sometimes in our classes mm-hmm. is forcing them into doing some experimentation where there's no right, and no wrong and no judgment. So for anyone who's ever played basketball, uh, there was a game of horse where you'd make up some kind of shot and you'd shoot it. Mm-hmm. And if else had to make the same shot and if they missed they got a letter well you can do the same thing in agility where you say okay so the first person has to pick four or five obstacles you can handle it however you want and however you handle it if you get it right everyone else sort of in your group has to handle it the same way you did even if it's not their style mm, i like that right? game. <laughs> if you get it if you don't go clean you get a letter that's fine. Right? And, and if the person who calls what they were going to do then messes up, then someone else becomes the leader. So it puts this gamification and experimentation into it. No different than the kids trying to do around the back, under the leg, and into the hoop in basketball kind of thing, right? And it takes away that judgment of right and wrong and perfect because we all know what's right and wrong and perfect now was not right and wrong and perfect 10 years ago, which was the opposite again of 10 years before that. We're back to where we started half the time. <laughs> so. You know, so trying to be careful of that thing, the adult learners will latch on to that right and wrong and perfect. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, again, is making them take responsibility for them turning it around, but giving them the tools to do that. And a lot of times that's by having them step back and being more objective. Okay, Mm -hmm. so if I were paying you to train that dog, what would you say? How would you think about that session or what would you say to that student? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. I I think sometimes we do, you know, uh, sometimes I find like, responding with a question can be helpful. Like, okay, like the wee polls didn't go well. What's your, what's your plan for this week then? Like, what are you, what are you going to do about it basically? Um, or like if we have like a generally tough class, like sometimes we have harder classes, like we have harder drills and, you know, at the end of the the day, everyone was kind of, everyone's kind of like, whoa, that was tough. And it's, you know, you kind of want to say like, that's good. That means that you have room to grow. Like Mm -hmm. this would be no fun if you came out to class and you just did everything right on the first trial. Who wants to do that? So you have to think about it like, okay, get your notebooks out, make your lists. What do you need to work on? I love it when I can't do something because it's like then you want to come back and yes like damn it i am going to be able to do this by the end of the week yeah. like that's going to happen you got to have that fire in your belly and, and maybe that comes with like competitive nature and that type of thing or experience but that is that's a really good way to, to spin it on someone i think and and i think we we do do it sometimes but i think we could do it more yeah i think we do, could do it more for sure mm-hmm. well again it's the idea of giving them the responsibility for turning it around because you're not always going to be there to do it for them yeah and you ask they can practice mental game skills out of sight of competition. Well, that's an example. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, that leads me to another question that um, both Jamie and I put down on our, our lists of things. And that is the balance of um, coach and being a coach and being a competitor in a uh, competition. I think this is one of the very rare sports where you compete against your students <laughs> You know, you're in the same competition, you're running the same courses, and it can be a real challenge sometimes when you're at a competition. And I, I had probably close to 20 students at the last at the last thing, which I'm very proud of. Um, you know, I love I love them all dearly. And I, you know, I, I want to be successful. And if I'm not successful, I, I want them up there. I, I, you know, but there is a balance. It can be a challenge sometimes to you know, they want your help. They want to know how to handle courses. You know, they want all these things or, but you're there to focus. Yeah. Or the other thing is like, if they're not doing well, that's also stressful as a coach. Cause you want to help them. I know you want to like pick them up and brush them off. But at the same time, you're like, I got my own shit going on here. I can't help you. And I can't help myself at the same time. <laughs> so I, have you had people um, ask you about that? Or I guess, yeah. have you experienced that? You probably have. You probably have experienced that in multiple sports, I'm sure. 
Yeah, it, you know, it is a great question because um, ultimately they do have to understand boundaries. Mm-hmm. And not only do they have to understand boundaries, um, I mean, you want to help them, but you also need to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. At an, so there is that balance that goes on. And one of the biggest things is the idea of, again, cutting the apron strings a bit. Right. Because the reason they're latching on is they are used to that or they want, you know, but ultimately they've got to figure out if they're going to become the best they can be. They have to be able to take responsibility for their own choices. So you can have maybe set up sort of um, times when you'd be available or, um, you know, a certain amount of time before runs, you just are off limits or whatever the case may be like there's different ways of setting up a system that works for them. Um, It could be that maybe, you know, people are putting you on retainer events as opposed to, you know, whatever, Mm -hmm. but different ways of thinking about it because you do need to take care of yourself at events as well as I know you do want to help them. So what is the balance of that? But if they're that needing help from you, ask yourself, are you creating enough independence yeah. in practices, right? And, or set it up to be maybe in local events, um, you set it up to where they are practicing more doing their own thing and maybe you help them more at bigger events or whatever the case may be, the mm-hmm. reverse of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you try and think of ways of what would make most sense and get their feedback too in terms of why you're doing it so mm-hmm. that they understand part of the growth process. Some of my biggest performance leaps weren't until after I essentially cut the apron strings with, you know, whatever the coach was or whatever emotional attachment I had to a coach or whatever the case may be. So planning that into their development is important because when you think of most of the people who are at the top, most of them are coaching other people. They're not really going to coaches. That's right. And it's because they've made that transition. Mm -hmm. So there, your students are at that point, but starting that process sooner than later actually helps them grow a little bit faster. Mm-hmm. I find, I mean, our our students are pretty great. They're super respectful. Like it's very rare that somebody would come up and like ask me right something right before I go in the ring. Like everybody's really great, which is good. Um, but I I do think sometimes the hard part is like when they have like a couple bad runs and you know they're a little bit down in the dumps. It's it can be. It can be challenging sometimes. You want to pick them up. Yeah, but then that takes a lot of energy, takes a lot of focus. And then sometimes if you're dealing with someone else's negativity, it's, you know, you start to feel a little bit down as well. And then you have to be able to get yourself back up and like get into that mode again to like run your own dog. So it is um, it is a hard balance. I know for a long time, um, Ontario regionals for like AAC organization, I stopped competing because I I couldn't manage running my dogs and helping students. And so I just stopped, stopped running my dogs at those events. And I went for years, just several years. Yeah. Now. Coaching students the entire weekend. And I loved it because I, I love that side of it. And I felt way less stressed that I didn't have to perform at the same time. Um, mm-hmm. But that's not always the case. That's I'm, I'm not going to not run my dog to be a full-time coach. It's, it's going to be a, a balance, but yeah, that's a hard, <laughs> that's a hard pit. Doing is um, creating support systems within your students mm. so that it's not always falling onto your shoulders, but maybe they have uh, buddies that they can, you I know, think can that help. Happens. Yeah, yeah, I do too. That's useful too, because then there's a support system in place and it just takes a little bit of the pressure off you to be the one to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think that's happening a little bit already. Oh, so good. Did you have any more questions? I think that's it. Oh, did you have any more, did you have any other directions that you wanted to go, Kath? No, I think that was great. I mean, we've covered a ton of material. So <laughs> that I was so fun. good. <laughs> yeah, I have, I do have a quick thing that maybe we can finish off on. Do you have sure. like, um, can, in like 30 seconds or like a minute, do you have like one tip that people could like put in their toolbox for like mental game that they could like Remind them, you already gave lots of tips throughout the thing, but can you think of like one thing that you could give to everybody that they could just put in their toolbox right now and take with them to like the next class or the next trial that could help them? 
Yeah, your performance is not your self-worth. I like that. And I do like that, too. That is a big one. I think too often we are equating our self-worth with how we perform, and we only, therefore we're only as good as our last performance. So if the last thrill didn't go so well, we feel crappy about ourselves, and we carry that for the rest of the practice, the runs, the weekend, the tournament, whatever it is. And I think it's really important to understand that agility or anything else, whether you're a high-powered, you know, some sort of CEO or whether whatever you do, ultimately, whatever you do is not your value as a human being. I've been lucky enough to meet lots of like famous people in my lifetime. And ultimately, what was really interesting for me is if I ever felt intimidated meeting someone after talking with them for about three minutes, that all went away and my opinion completely changed in terms of it didn't matter anymore what they did, but who they were as a person. Mm. If you can feel confident to walk into a room that was say full of famous actors, musicians, whatever, and talk to them like they're another human being, you know that the sport doesn't own you. And that's really what matters because ultimately if the sport owns you in terms of your self-worth, it'll always have control over you and you won't have control over it. That was a far more eloquent way of saying what I say, and that is you need to care a little less about agility. Take the pressure (laughs) off. The way you said it was much, (laughs) much, much, much more beautiful. (laughs) Uh, We like to say, like, it's only agility. At the end of the day, you're going to go home to your Your family family. and your other dogs, and you're going to have a nice dinner. You're going to have a glass of wine or whatever it is. And in a couple weeks, you're not even going to remember this situation. You have to care a little less, but um, I like your version much better, Kathy. (laughs) Well, thank you. Well, you know, just as a final note, the problem that most people don't realize is when they start beating themselves up, it's because they're feeling worthless and it becomes self abuse. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you can see it in other people, but we can't see it in ourselves. And often the reason we go ahead and try and be better people, it's not because we feel we deserve it. We feel the dog deserves it. Yeah. And we have to also know that we're worth, you know, that kind of care and that kind of paying attention to ourselves. And at the end of the day, you know, I always used to joke from way back, one of the very first AAC nationals, I did a talk and I said, it's not world peace and it's not world hunger. And, you know, that's at the end of the day, it matters. It doesn't mean it's not important. Yeah, of course. Don't let self-worth get tied off in any given result, especially if you want to do this for the long term, because the roller coaster is brutal if that's how you're playing it. Oh, absolutely. This is not a sport for the faint of heart. It is, there is so many ups and downs, continuous, you know, when you're dealing with something with a live animal, you're not... It's impossible to be perfect and wonderful all and complete control. Yeah. All of the time. It just doesn't work that way. So if you're a perfectionist, I'm a bit of a perfectionist for sure. But if you're a perfectionist and, and you know, that's your expectation, you're never going to meet it. So you're never going to be satisfied. And at the end of the day, you know, I always say when people say, oh, I'm just doing this for fun. Yes and no. You're doing it because, well, you should be doing it because you want to, you know, be great at it. You want to do well and you want to, you want to get something from it. But there's a balance between wanting to be great and wanting to do these things, but also not losing the fun. Yes. At the end of the day, it should still be fun. You got to figure out where you lie between those two things and not lose sight of it. Sometimes people just get so stressed out and so hung up on things that they're not even enjoying themselves anymore. And why waste a weekend where you're stressing out all the time? There has to be a balance. There has to be a balance. And once you take the pressure off, you'll get better. Absolutely. Well, one of the things about taking the pressure off is, you know, too many people worry about outcomes and outcomes are what we do not have control over. We have control over process. We have control over what we do in the next 60 seconds. That's it. Mm -hmm. We don't have control over any kind of outcome. So when you, get your joy and you're curious and you're passionate and you love the process, the outcomes are byproducts of all of that. And that's what you need to focus on. And it really, in the simple form, comes back to just do your job. Yeah. Yeah. That comes back to what we said at the beginning, that Mm -hmm. all you need to think about is how you need to show up for your dog. That's right. At the end of the day, they're they're, they're the ones, they're the most important piece. 
Yep. Okay, Kathy, if people want to connect with you and learn more about, uh, you know, how they can work from uh, work with you, let us know where they can, they can find your contact information. Sure. It's really easy. It's kathykeats.com. So it's K-A-T-H-Y-K-E-A-T-S.com. And you also have a, a new podcast out too as well, right? And what's the name of that? Well, I know the name oh. of it, but you can save it. Oh. Say it again. <laughs> the Keats Show. The Kathy Sorry. Keats Show. Yes. Absolutely. I already listened to a couple episodes and I loved it. So make sure you guys uh, check out Kathy and um, check out her podcast as well. Maybe on a a different topic or or a different direction, but um, that was amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. I really enjoyed being here. Thanks so much for having me on. All right, guys, we'll see you in the next one. Remember, if you want to hear more podcasts, you can uh, subscribe to our podcast. We're on every podcast um, platform there is. And, um, you know, we want to have real conversations about agility and we want to get you guys thinking about things. And the most important thing is after you listen, we want you to feel like you want to go out and do something with your dog. Train your dog. Do something that gets you motivated and pumped. And um, hopefully we create, I know we created that today. How could you not? How could you not be <laughs> stoked to go out and do something? So I hope everybody has a great one. We'll see you in the next one. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to our McCann Dogs Agility Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out the links in the show notes below. On that note, happy training. <laughs>